I'm Johnny B. Good, the host of the podcast Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin. This podcast dives deep into the story of Ray Trapani and his company Centratech. I'll explore how 320-somethings built a company out of lies, deceit, and greed. I've been saying since a very young age that I was going to be a millionaire. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge this season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Listen to the highly anticipated 100th episode of Tank and Jay Valentine's R&B Money Podcast with artist Chris Brown. Even working with you from Carrie Hilson, Adonis, mm-hmm. back in the day, I was 15, 14 doing that album. So like I said, I was in school like, yeah. okay, this is how you do it. This is how you make a song. There's a verse, a pre-chorus, and then a hook. I didn't know none of that. You learned I, that over a summer, bro. That's what I, it felt like. That's what it felt like. Listen to R&B Money on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Rivals is a production of iHeartRadio. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Rivals, the show about music beefs and feuds and long-simmering resentments between musicians. I'm Steve. And I'm Jordan. And today we're going to talk about the White Stripes versus the Black Keys. And this rivalry is really interesting to me because on the surface, it seems really simple. It seems like... Jack White doesn't like the Black Keys. He doesn't think Nashville's big enough for two retro rock guitar and drum duos who have colors in their names, you know? Which is weird <laughs> right? because I always thought Jet sounded more like, you know, at least vocally, like they were ripping off the White Stripes. And also, you would think that Jack White and Dan Auerbach would have a lot to say to each other, right? They'd throw on like a Sonics record and crack open a beer, but that's not the case. Yeah, yeah, I wrote about this rivalry in my book, Your Favorite Band is Killing Me, and it actually ended up being one of the more personal chapters because to me this is like a really good allegory for something that like I struggle with and I think a lot of other dudes struggle with, which is like a forming adult male relationships. Like it can be really hard to do, and I feel like the inability of Jack White and Dan Auerbach to just get along, because it's really about those two guys. Patrick Carney, of course, is also in the Black Keys And he's been involved in this somewhat, but I feel like it's really between like Jack and Dan. And you look at them on paper and you're like, okay, you live in the same town. You're in the same profession. Their kids (laughs) went to the same school, or at least they did for a time. And we're going (laughs) to talk about that in this episode as well. You know, they both like blues rock. I mean, there's like a lot of things these guys have in common. And yet because of some mix of like machismo and like competition, they can't get security. Yeah, exactly. I guess I just want Jack White and Dan Auerbach to be bros to show the rest of us bros how to be bros. And you know, there's a funny little moment in the uh, in the documentary it might get loud when Jack's on his way to have a guitar throwdown with Jimmy Page and The Edge 
And the director asks Jack, you know, how do you think this is all going to go down? And Jack kind of sighs and says, oh, I don't know. We'll probably have a fist fight. <laughs> right. He's, he's, I'm sure he's kidding on some level, but on another level, I don't know that he is. Like, I feel like he's almost speaking for like all dudes when confronted with having to meet new dudes for the first time. Like, oh, maybe, maybe we will have a fight. Like, you know, Stephen, like, I'm surprised we didn't get into a fight when we first met. Which, you know, I mean, just so we're clear, I'm the Jack White in this scenario. I'm the old-timey pale nerd, and you're definitely Jimmy Page. Well, I appreciate that analogy because I, like Jimmy Page, I also worship Satan. So, uh, you know, I feel like we have that in common. But that's for another episode. Why don't we get into the background of the White Stripes and Black Keys feud? Let's get into this mess. So the first real sign of trouble is this really interesting quote that Jack gives in a, uh, a 2010 interview with Rolling Stone. Uh, he says, I'm a lot more to do with Jay-Z than the Black Keys. <laughs> Which, huh? Like, yeah, I, I, no I sense. I mean, Makes no sense. The only thing I can think of that maybe he's referring to is that, that sort of knock that great James Bond theme that he did with Alicia Keys the year before Jay-Z did Empire State of Mind. Like, that's the only comparison I can think of. Like, am I missing something here? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think he was just basically trying to distance himself from the Black Keys. Yeah, I, I never really understood that. And this was also, this is 2010. This is the same year that that Brothers, the Black Keys sixth album, really breaks through. And that's also the year that the Black Keys settled in Nashville. And the White Stripes at this time, they're kind of on the ropes. They're going to announce their split formally the next year, but it, it, they're already kind of a spent force at that stage. So I guess... Jack seeing this other band kind of doing his own thing and being really successful at it when his own uh, group is really on the way out. I can see why he'd sort of begrudge them their success. But uh, so, yeah, it's safe to say that Jack White was not part of the Black Keys Nashville Welcome Committee. No, not at all. And Dan even says that. He gives an interview a couple years later when the, uh, the journalists ask him if he knows Jack White, which is, you know... Like you said, same town, same profession, same collection of really obscure old guitars. Like you think they would have a lot to say to each other. And Dan Arbach gives this really diplomatic answer. He says, no, I, I don't know Jack, which is kind of like when uh, Mariah Carey is asked if she knows J-Lo. And she says, oh, no, I don't know her. End of, right. end of statement. There's, there's some frostiness there. And the journalist keeps on pushing and says, well, you know, you're, I know you're tight with the, uh, the raconteur's drummer, Jack's other band. Like, why don't you arrange an introduction? And Dan's kind of like, well, you know, do you hang out with every writer in Nashville? No. Like, we, just because we're in the same job doesn't mean we have to hang out, which is true, I guess. But I Yeah, but it, you it, definitely feel like they would have run into each other at, like, you know, the antique guitar store or something, you know, <laughs> or lo looking at, like, ancient phonographs, you know, like I feel like their paths would have crossed. Yeah, you know, it's fascinating to me because I think when you look at these two bands, obviously there's the obvious comparison that you can make about being two-person blues rock bands. Uh, they definitely have a similar aesthetic there. I think it's fair to say that like when we look at music history, that the White Stripes have a stature that is greater than the Black Keys. Uh, you know, Jack White is a musician who has rubbed shoulders with like the biggest rock legends that there are. You know, he's friends with Bob Dylan. He knows Mick Jagger. You know, he did that movie with Jimmy Page. And I don't think the Black Keys have that kind of stature. And yet there was a time, you know, in the early 2010s where they were one of the most successful rock bands on the planet. And I think in a way they had more pop success than the White Stripes did. You know, I think that had something to do with the fact that like the Black Keys were willing to conform to the formula of, of pop radio more than, than Jack White ever would have been. You know, they worked with Danger Mouse on Brothers and then he 
basically became a member of the band on their next record, El Camino. And both of those albums went platinum, which was you know, a pretty incredible thing for a rock band to do at that time. I mean, I think the Black Keys were among the only rock bands selling uh, at that kind of level. And it does seem like Jack White, in some way, might have felt like the Black Keys were benefiting from his misfortune. You know, because like, as you mentioned, the the White Stripes, you know, in 2010, they were not in a good place. I think they played their last show ever, what ended up being their last show in 2009. And then they ended up announcing their breakup in early uh, 2011. And I think you can explain the success of the Black Keys for the reasons I already stated, like working with Danger Mouse and, you know, just having a better pop sense. But it's maybe not totally wrong that like, their ascendance had something to do with the White Stripes not being around. Like, there's definitely a coincidence there where the White Stripes disappeared and the Black Keys become this huge band. And whether that's true or not, that's like how Jack White saw it at the time. And I'm genuinely trying to remember, at the time in 2011 when they announced their breakup, I felt as though they'd split up at the top of their game. I didn't think of it as like a band that was kind of past it saying, you know what, they were going to hang it up. Did you at the time get the feeling that they were kind of on their way out? Like they seemed so huge to me still. Like I didn't think of it as being a case of like, you know, they were kind of sunsetting on them. No, I think the White Stripes, again, they had, I think, really established themselves as like one of the marquee bands of their generation. You know, especially when you look at those early records, um, you know, the self-titled record and to steal. And then, of course, White Blood Cells was their big breakout. And then Elephant, like really put them through the roof. And that's the record that has Seven Nation Army on it, which, I mean, I think many people consider that to be like the biggest rock anthem of the last 20 years. I mean, it's certainly the song that you hear in stadiums all the time. I mean, it organically became this like big sports song that like people would sing the guitar riff, which is a pretty incredible song. And there's no, there's, there's no Black Keys song that has that kind of stature. I think this is an instance of like the White Stripes sort of taking themselves out because Meg White didn't want to tour anymore. And maybe there was just a hunger out there for a two-person blues rock band. And people were like, well, if the White Stripes aren't here, let's go with this other band that has a color in their name, you know? (laughs) And they have some pretty good songs too. And this is the kind of music that you want to put in beer commercials and hot wings commercials and, you know, whatever. Like, I mean, that's what the Black Keys became at that time, that not only were their songs huge on the charts, but, like, it seemed like every sort of masculine corporate brand put a Black Keys song or a Black Keys ripoff in their commercial, you know? And it just made their music inescapable for a few years. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I put the Black Keys in what I think of as, like, the pink echelon, like the artist Pink, where I feel like her songs, like Monday Night Football, and just every, they're just unavoidable, on like, and their pictures are on, like, sides of buses and billboards and stuff like that. Yeah, they definitely, they had no problem licensing their stuff out, which... I thought it was interesting in later years, they kind of like sidestepped the whole question of, you know, sellout by basically saying, look, we we can't afford to be this indie band. Like we we want to make, we don't have a fallback. We don't have a trust fund. We, we want to make music for everybody. So I thought it was really interesting how they, I mean, we'll touch more on this later, how Jack was so about, you know, musical authenticity and, and not selling out. And they never really, at least to my knowledge, got, got hit with those accusations, but getting ahead of yeah, ourselves. I mean, yeah, I mean, I think, um, they definitely suffered that stigma from Jack White himself. You know, right. Jack White, I think, definitely looked at them as like a sellout band. Because again, as you said, like the Black Keys did a lot of things that the White Stripes never would have done and, and didn't do in their career. But the Black Keys also showed that when you do those things, you can actually benefit greatly from that. 
it's also worth noting too that like as you said like the black keys have made that argument about how like we have to be in all these ads because you know we're not trust fund kids we you know we come from this like middle class midwestern background so you know we don't have the same hang-ups maybe about working with corporations that like other you know maybe better pedigreed bands do i mean Jack White also comes from the Midwest, and he's also from, I think, like a lower middle class background. I think he had like a pretty big family. One of like nine kids or something, yeah. Right. So it's not like he was a trust fund kid either. That just kind of adds another layer to um, this feud here because they really, again, are coming from very similar places, but they just had different ways about going in their career. It does seem like as this feud progresses that Jack White is the instigator over and over again. I mean, it seems like there's a pattern where like Jack White will act out and the Black Keys will react to it, but they're mainly trying to tamp it down. And then it dies down for a bit and then Jack White does something else. <laughs> that makes it worse. <laughs> there was a, apparently an incident in 2012 when Dan Auerbach goes by the uh, the Third Man Studios to try to, I guess, see Jack White and Jack uh, bars him from the studio. Which- <laughs> right. <laughs> was he like standing in the door or something? Like he's like physically was like that. That's the story I heard that he was like actually himself. He was physically oh blocking God. them. I don't know if that's I, true. Oh, I didn't hear that. Oh, I I really hope he's like could standing be wrong. there dressed could be like wrong. a scarecrow with like a thing of straw hanging <laughs> right. out of his mouth. Oh right. my God! Exactly. I I could be wrong. Don't quote me on that. I probably shouldn't say it on a podcast if I don't know for sure. But like, let's just say that he did do that because it's more fun. But I'm not confirming that that's the fact. But it's fun to pretend that Jack White. Yes, was dressed as a scarecrow in the door trying to keep them out of the studio. <laughs> and like, you know, that, that, that's a fairly egregious thing. And, and the Black Keys are doing an interview with Rolling Stone later that year in 2012. And they sort of tangentially mention, they don't get into it. He refu- Dan Auerbach refuses to really elaborate on it. But it comes out over the course of the interview that, that Jack White barred him from the studio. And Rolling Stone calls Jack White and basically tries to fact check this. And Jack gives him this incredible statement. Anything you've ever heard anyone say about me is 100% accurate. That Beautiful. was his comment when asked to deny that he he blocked uh, Dan Auerbach from the studio. So clearly he, he's got an axe to grind here. And Yes, definitely. Yeah, and I feel like the big thing that happened with these bands. Well, first of all, I mean, they, they, they squared up at the Grammys too in, in 2013. I guess we should mention that. And again, this was like when Jack White, you know, he was trying to establish his solo career. And he put out his first solo record, Blunderbuss, that came out in 2012. I think that's his best solo record still. Um, I think that's a really good record. And it was actually nominated for Album of the Year that year. It didn't win, of course. And in the category where the Black Keys and Jack White were both nominated, the Black Keys won for their song Lonely Boy. That was in the best rock song category. And didn't they also win in the best rock album category, too, against Jack White? Yeah, El Camino won that one for best rock album. I gotta say though, Lonely Boy kind of was the best rock song of of whatever year it was, twenty twelve, right? What do you think? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, the Black Keys were definitely in their prime as far as like a commercial rock band. I know there's like a lot of people who actually don't like those records, like Black Keys fans who prefer like the early garage rock stuff, like Thick Freakness and Rubber Factory, like those records. And they look at the pop records as being, you know, sort of like a, a watered down version of what the Black Keys were doing. Um, whereas I, I tend to look at it as like they made a decision to be a commercial rock band at that time. And I think they did a pretty good job. And as you said, like Lonely Boy, 
in terms of like like a like a rock radio type song, like it didn't get much better than that at that time. I mean, if you were listening to rock radio like in in 2012, 2013, Lonely Boy was as good as it got. I mean, there were some really bad songs on rock yeah, radio. Yeah, that was that was that the summer of Gautier, I believe. Right. Which I mean, actually Gautier, you know, was even that I would take over like a lot of what's on rock radio now. Right. That's yeah. like somebody that I used to know, that song. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he had that one song and then he left. Like there's no more Gautier <laughs> after that. You know, he had his one song and he's like one and done. I can't believe you let me have one hit. This is amazing. <laughs> I'm 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 gonna bounce. But I feel like the feud between the Black Keys and the White Stripes really took off during the divorce hearings between Jack White and Karen Elson, his soon to be ex wife. Because there were a bunch of emails that Jack White wrote to Karen Elson that were leaked during this case. And I don't remember if Jack White talked about anything other than the Black Keys in these emails. Like the Black Keys stuff is the only things I remember. I feel like like those were the things that were blown up in the press. Do you remember reading about that? Oh yeah, I mean, who would have thought that Jack White would have wound up on TMZ? Like I just remember thinking that was the weirdest <laughs> thing. And then I actually read, And but you're right. Like these emails, I guess they were like, his soon-to-be ex-wife submitted them to the court, but I don't really understand what they sought to prove. I think they were just trying to make Jack White look like unhinged and bad, but not in like a criminal sense, just in like a really petty way. So I don't know. I never really understood like why they were submitted, but but they were out there. They made it to TMZ and they were pretty hilarious. Yeah, well, he says that in the emails, Jack White is talking about how he feels like the Black Keys ripped him off. He gets really mad about how the children that he has with Karen Elson are going to be sent to the same private Nashville school that Dan Auerbach's children go to. And there's a quote in there where he says, my concern with Auerbach is because I don't want the kids involved in any of that crap. And I don't know what he means by that crap. Like, I guess just the feud. Yeah. 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 Or like, you know, his kids are going to be uh, soiled by inferior blues rock combos i don't know what the i don't know what that crap refers to but he says you aren't thinking ahead that's a possible 12 fucking years i'm going to be sitting in kids chairs next to that asshole with other people trying to lump us together he gets another free reign to follow me around and copy me and push himself into my world so jack white is basically having these like rage fantasies about being at like parent teacher conferences and having small plastic chairs (laughs) Right. Like these two huge men and like tiny chairs. And Dan Arbach the whole time is just going to be plagiarizing like the latest Jack White, like masterstroke for like the next 12 fucking years, as he says. And of course, again, like these are not public statements that he's making. These are emails that he's writing to his, again, soon to be ex-wife that uh, are leaked. And again, like this is another instance where I mean, I guess Jack White wasn't trying to be the instigator here, but he, you know, ended up sort of inadvertently being the instigator. But then, like, the Black Keys, they stepped in, and they were actually, like, pretty gracious in their response, right? Oh, they were super cool about it. Yeah, they were saying, like, you know what? That, that's What he said was, like, pretty fucked up. But and Petra Carney said it was a private conversation. He's talking to Rolling Stone in 2014. He said, we've all said, like, you know, terrible things about other people in, in private. Like, how awful would that be if everything that we ever said to somebody about somebody we don't like— just all got aired in one big, like, you know, airing of the grievances. It would be terrible. 
and he's right, you know? He said, ultimately, it's no one's business. He sounds like an asshole, but I actually feel embarrassed for him. And yeah, the band said, no, we don't hold any grudges. Like, it's fucked up that that happened to him. All right, hang on. We'll be right back with more Rivals. My name is Johnny B. Good, and I'm the host of the new podcast, Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin. Over this nine-part series, I'll explore the life and crimes of my best friend, Ray Trapani. I always wanted to be a criminal. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. You see, Ray has this unique ability to find loopholes and exploit them. They collected $30 million. There were headlines about it. His company, Centratech, was one of the hottest crypto startups in 2017. It was going to change the world, until it didn't. He came into my office, opened my email, and the subject heading was FBI request. It was only a matter of time before the truth came out. You can only fake it till you make it for so long before they find out that your Harvard degree is not so crimson. How could you sit there and do something that you know will objectively cause more harm in the world? Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I never thought I'd take my three young kids to Sicily to solve a century-old mystery, but that's what I'm doing in my new podcast, The Sicilian Inheritance. Join us as we travel thousands of miles on the beautiful and crazy island of Sicily, as I trace my roots back through a mystery for the ages and untangle clues within my family's origin story, which is morphed like a game of telephone through the generations. Was our family matriarch killed in a land deal gone wrong? Or was it by the Sicilian Mafia? A lover's quarrel? Or was she, as my father believed, a witch? Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. So this is all going down, I guess, you know, it's like late summer of 2013. And again, these emails are leaked. And depending on your point of view, either Jack White is humiliated or the Black Keys are humiliated, you know, but it's definitely fostering some real resentment between these these guys. And then Jack White really goes into instigator mode. I guess it's in May of 2014. In another Rolling Stone interview. I mean, this is the one like where he's really unloading on them. And, you know, I wonder if he would have done this, what he says in this, if those emails hadn't leaked. You know what I mean? Like, I wonder if this would have been kept under wraps, but now he's like, well, it's out there. I might as well really just unload and, and really articulate my point. I don't know. It's interesting to think about. Yeah. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, he might have just said, like, what the hell? All right. Like, okay, look, I don't have to pretend to be nice anymore. I'm going to really say what I think about these guys. You know, he compares them to the kids at school who dress like everybody else because they don't know what else to do. You know, they just kind of copy whatever the trends are. And Jack goes on and says, you know, I hear TV commercials with music ripping off sounds of mine to the point where I really think it's me. 
half the time it's the black keys. <laughs> it was probably all the time it was yeah. the black keys. At that, like in 2014, again, if you were selling beer, hot wings, or like tires, or you know anything kind of like like a, like a dude related product, there was like some black keys sounding like guitar riff playing in the background. Jack, to his credit, he kind of like, he admits that he, you know, I'm a white guy playing the blues. Like, I, I can't really claim any ownership over that. But he did make the point that there's, you know, an act can open up a certain kind of style and other acts follow in the wake. And he uses the analogy of Amy Winehouse kind of setting the trend for Adele and Duffy and these kind of retro uh, white girl beehive hair English soul singers. And he, he made the point that, you know, had Amy Winehouse lived, maybe Adele wouldn't be as huge as, as she was, which is a fascinating point. I don't know, an interesting alternate uh, music history point. Yeah, you know, I don't think he's totally wrong there. Like I said before, you know, I think certainly in his mind, he felt that when the Black Keys really became a big thing, which was in 2010, basically, like they put out that single Tighten Up, which was from the album Brothers. And that song became a pop hit in a way that like no Black Keys song had been a hit before. And 2010 just happened to coincide with this period where the White Stripes were not very active. I mean, they essentially cut short a tour in 2009, and then they went into this hiatus period that ultimately ended with their breakup in 2011. So there's certainly this like coincidental alignment of the White Stripes going away and the Black Keys starting to rise. And again, I think to merely say that like, oh, the Black Keys became popular because the White Stripes weren't around. You know, that's definitely oversimplifying things. But speaking to Jack White's point, I don't think there's a question that, like, Amy Winehouse, for instance, popularized a type of, like, retro soul music that, like, someone like Adele took and applied to her own music. And if Amy Winehouse hadn't been there to open the door, maybe it would have been harder for Adele to capitalize on this market that was already in place, like when when, when she emerged. Um, to say that Adele wouldn't have become huge if Amy Winehouse had lived, that's probably oversimplifying it again, just like it is in the White Stripes Black Keys analogy. But yeah, I mean, again, I don't think he's totally wrong to say that. The thing with Jack White, though, is, you know, I, I just feel like his image has changed a lot from, say, like the early aughts. Because, like, I remember, like, when Jack White first emerged, and he was, like, one of the coolest rock stars on the planet. And I feel like maybe people, like, around my age, like, I'm in my early 40s, I think we look at Jack White in a certain kind of way that, like, younger people don't. You know, like, I don't think that Jack White is all that cool, necessarily, for, like, younger people. I feel like he's now taken on this image of just being, like, a grumpy sort of anti-technology guy who's like, you know, <laughs> listening to like vinyl records all day long, you know, like with like a monocle or something, you know, or whatever, like <laughs> so whatever kind of like snobby, you know, caricature you want to make about Jack White. I mean, like, I'm curious, like, cause you're a little bit younger than me. Like, what do you think about Jack White? Like, does he have any kind of like mystique for you? I mean, there was definitely a transition between, I, I think of it as him, between him wearing t-shirts and jeans and him dressing like an Amish Willy Wonka. I think there was definitely <laughs> right. a transition there. I, I mean, for me, I, he was huge, a total legend. I mean, Seven Nation Army for my age group was like Stairway to Heaven for all the kids who wanted to learn to play guitar. Like that was the first riff that you learned how to play. I mean, the iconography around the White Stripes in general 
was, you know, in the record stores in, in my town were literally alongside Led Zeppelin and Nirvana. I mean, they were probably the only 21st century band I can think of that the posters were sold in those stores alongside those classic rock bands. I mean, they, they were huge. And, and so, no, I, I, I see now kind of years later when he, again, kind of became the anti-technology guy who really... Uh, you're right, seemed like, like this curmudgeon, especially when all the stuff about the Black Keys came out. And I also have a lot of friends who are guitar players who are angry at him for buying up all these uh, and popularizing these like old cheap uh, like airline guitars and stuff. And now they're all really, really expensive and unaffordable because he popularized them. But no, I uh, people in my age group thought he was, you know, our Jimmy Page or something, thought he was huge. That was amazing. Again, I think that there is like this maybe duality with the White Stripes. I think the White Stripes have like a different stature than Jack White has on his own. I think like as a solo artist, he's still sort of struggling to establish an identity that makes sense in the modern era. Like I think if he got back together with Meg White and did a tour, I think there'd be a whole lot other level of excitement for that than there would be for his own solo records. Even though like I I like a lot of his solo records, but uh, you know, again, like he's an aging rock musician you know he's now i think in his 40s and yeah it just seems like he's like this guy that just instigates feuds with people or complains about people being on their cell phones all the time you know or complaining about social media all the time and you never want to be that guy and you can really see that manifest itself i think in this black keys rivalry and i think on some level he was like self-aware about that like like this rolling stone interview that he did where again he was accusing essentially the black keys of ripping him off like he put out a statement like right as the interview was about to come out where like he apologized for it which again is the, that's like an incredible thing isn't it like when you are apologizing for an interview that like a lot of people haven't even did. read yet yeah exactly <laughs> it's like it it's like oh no like i know i'm gonna get in trouble for this like he like no one's even read it yet but like he can anticipate it but like the apology that he gave like i mean i don't know if you saw like did you see this like it doesn't seem like super sincere oh no all of it sounds incredibly backhanded and almost condescending in ways i thought yeah i mean like he says like i wish the band the black keys all the success they can get he says i hope the best for their record label and uh and he's like lord knows that i can tell you myself how hard it is to get people to pay attention to a two-piece band with a plastic guitar. So any attention that the Black Keys can get in the world, I wish it for them. Again, kind of saying like, oh yeah, like I've done what they've I've done. I've been there. I've been there. And you know, they're doing the same thing. It's cute. And I know it's hard and they're getting some attention. So good for them. And uh, he also had to apologize for like, essentially slagging Adele, Lana Del Rey and, and Duffy too. So like he kind of offended them too, by like saying they would have a career if Amy Winehouse had lived. So yeah, I mean, it was this very sort of condescending apology that like probably didn't really achieve what he wanted it to. No, I mean, especially the comparison thing saying, you know, I've been there. I know what it's like. I, I feel like that was gratuitous. That was the point for me where I'm saying, are you really, is this really what you want to be doing? Or you just want to remind people yet again that you've done exact, you've walked that ground. They're all in your wake right now because of you. That's what I took it as. It's, it's a, barely an apology, more of just a way to remind people that that he started this in a, in a major mainstream way. So you have this half-baked apology which you feel like, okay, maybe that's going to end it. But then the following year, I guess it's, it's like the fall of 2015, like they got into a bar brawl like in New York. Like, like what's the deal with this story? 
Oh, this was incredible. So Patrick Carney was performing at Neil Fest, a, a tribute concert for Neil Young, and they were having an after party at a bar near called Cabin Down Below. I love the fact that a bar brawl took place at a, at a bar named after a Tom Petty song. That's, to me, the best part of all this. So Patrick Carney goes on Twitter and says, yeah, um, I was at this bar last night, never met Jack White. Until last night, he came into a bar in New York. I go to a lot with a few friends and he tried to fight me. I don't fight and I don't get fighting, but he was mad, three exclamation marks. He's why I play music, the bully assholes who made me feel like nothing. But anyway, Jack White, a 40-year-old bully tried to fight a 35-year-old nerd. It might get loud, but it might also get really, really sad and pathetic. Jack White, this is my favorite part. Jack White is basically Billy Corgan's dumbass zero t-shirt in human form. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> Patrick Carney, by the way, is incredibly quotable, incredibly good with insults. Yeah, man, like that, you know, like we've been focusing on Dan Auerbach and with the Patrick Carney element, like with that, like that is probably the best line that anyone had uh, in, in this, this entire, entire feud. <laughs> so tip the cat to Patrick Carney there. And of course, you know, this this tweet storm it catches Jack White's attention and he issues a denial. It's it's sort of like a non-denial denial. Like well, he says, like, nobody tried to fight you, Patrick. Nobody touched you or bullied you. Bullied is in is in quotes. You were asked a question you couldn't answer, so you walked away. So quit whining on the internet and speak face to face like a human being. End of story. Which by the way, for regular listeners of this podcast. I always love it like when people in feuds really prioritize like the face to face. Like if you're going to insult me, look me in the face. Like in our previous episode, we talked about, you know, Creed and Limp Biscuit. Uh, Scott Stapp wrote that song where he's like, if you're going to shoot me in the head, look me in the face. Like even if you're going to murder me, I want you to look me in the face. So Jack White eye is contact also is very important in feuds. Yeah, exactly. So he denies it. But then he also has this weird thing where he's like, I asked you a question that you couldn't answer. Which what do you I'm, think I'm the question curious. was? I don't know. I don't know. Like, maybe it was about, you know, hanging out in, like, the Nashville private school again. Like, you know, maybe that was still a thing. I don't know. I'm very curious about that. But then, like, I think Patrick Carney, as we've said before, it, this was, like, an instance, I guess, where the Black Keys brought up this incident, even though it, it, again, seems like Jack White instigated it. But now I think Patrick Carney tried to tamp it down after Jack White responded. Yeah, they apparently, they had a conversation, and I think later that day or maybe the next day, uh, Patrick Carney deleted most of his tweets and tweeted out, talk to Jack for an hour, he's cool, all good, which, you know, is a pretty nice way to end it. And Jack White shared a similar message from the Third Rail Records account, said, from one musician to another, you have my respect, Patrick Carney, which is, you know, at the end of the day, all that these dudes really want, respect from one another. It seemed like it was, like, pretty much done after that, but there were, like, a couple weird things that happened, like, like, did you know that like Patrick Carney produced a couple songs by uh, Jack White's ex-wife Karen Elson? Oh yeah, but they apparently it was recorded at like the, the Third Man Studios and everything. So I guess the Black Keys finally got allowed into the Third Man Studios. So I I would take that as you know tacit approval from Jack that he was cool with it if he let him use their studio. Right. Exactly. Yeah. It's still a little weird though, and, and like when you factor in like you know, Karen Elson's role in like leaking the emails where like Jack White was complaining about, you know, the school and like, you know, saying that the Black Keys ripped him off. 
kind of a funny wrinkle. What if that was the Black Keys plan all along? Like maybe Karen was like sort of like the back channel double agent and like they like put her up to leak those emails. Yeah, I don't know. I The, the emails thing is crazy to me because again, like I don't remember hearing about anything else in those emails. So no. I don't know if like Jack White was just like rage emailing his wife about the Black Keys all the time. <laughs> like all of his emails were just about the Black Keys for a while. <laughs> It's very strange to me. His email is like black keys hater, like at AOL.com or something. So that was kind of a weird thing, but it doesn't seem like it was a big deal. And like, there's been things subsequent to that, like where they've made public displays of support for each other. I think like when the black keys put out a single uh, in 2019 from their album, let's rock didn't like third man records, like tweet support for that song. Oh, yeah. They said more evidence that Nashville rock and roll is alive and well. Congrats on the new music, Black Keys, which is you know really nice. And Patrick Carney returned the favor. He did an interview with the Tennessean, and he called the shout-out really cool, and he, he big up the new Raconteurs record, which I didn't much care for. So that was very nice of him. And, you know, and it sounds like they've hung out in some recent years, and, like, they've, you know, they both have talked to journalists about how they, like, really like each other. So it seems like they have achieved that piece that we were talking about earlier in the episode, this idea of like how it could be hard for like adult males to get over the, themselves and to, you know, not look at other men as threats and to be friendly with each other. It seems like these guys have, uh, you know, reached that place finally after many years of hating each other. Just going back to like the roots of this rivalry though. I mean, do you think that like Jack White was ever justified in feeling like he was ripped off by these guys? Oh, it's weird because he wears his own like Delta Blues influences so proudly. It's just sort of strange like that he couldn't sort of see that in another band to be like, oh, cool, we like the same thing. So I understand the whole Amy Winehouse argument about how he opened a lot of doors that would have been closed to the Black Keys probably had he not been the one to open them. But yeah, I'm, I'm just, I am surprised that that he couldn't see a fellow musical kindred spirit. And also like, I really don't think Jack's artistic legacy in the White Stripes commercial success was in any way hindered by the Black Keys at all, right? No, not at all. I, th I feel like if anything, you could say like, well, this is evidence of how the White Stripes changed rock music, that in a way they helped make this idea of like a two-person you know, blues rock band, like a commercial entity. I mean, it's worth mentioning, and I think we've mentioned Flat Duo Jets a couple times in this episode, like, the White Stripes did not, like, originate the idea of, like, two people playing, like, blues riffs. Like, Flat Duo Jets was, you know, they were doing it, like, in the 80s. And uh, uh, Jack White, to his credit, has talked about that band being a huge inspiration for him. And, of course, Flat Duo Jets were nowhere near as successful as the White Stripes ended up being, or the Black Keys. But, yeah, you're right. I mean, I think, as far as the White Stripes go, and the Black Keys, we're really looking at bands on like two different strata in a way, where I think for a time the Black Keys achieved a kind of pop success that I don't think the White Stripes ever had. Like, I don't know if they ever had a song like Tighten Up that was played on pop radio. But it's also true that the White Stripes never really pursued that kind of success in their career. And I think it's fair to say that like Jack White wouldn't have wanted a song on pop radio. You know, he was very deliberate about the production choices he made and the kind of songs that he wrote. If anything, you know, like as the White Stripes got later in their career, like their records got weirder, like Get Behind Me Satan is like a super weird record or Icky Thump, you know, like those later White Stripes records are not nearly as commercial as like say Elephant is. 
And, you know, the White Stripes didn't need that kind of pop success because they had a certain kind of credibility that I think was always going to sustain them in their career. And it probably would have stuck with them if, if they had, you know, been able to continue as a band. And, you know, if they ever come back, I think there would be a lot of excitement for the White Stripes. So, yeah, for all their similarities, I think they clearly could coexist in the world and, and not have to go at each other's throats. My theory is that the thing that bothered Jack White about the Black Keys is that they made him feel less unique. And you get the idea, just even just looking at him and, and everything you know about him, that he cares very, very deeply about being unique. It seems like every stylistic choice that he makes appears to be rooted in this desire to, to just seem different. Like it almost is contrarian in a way. And I think just the Black Keys appearing so similar to him, just that alone had nothing to do with impringing on his commercial success or, or his legacy in any way. I think it just, it made him feel like less individual, maybe. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I think, you know, more than like having like a similar band structure or playing like a similar kind of music, it was that very thing you're talking about that like Jack White wasn't the quirkiest guy in the room anymore or that like the kind of thing that he did was, yeah, like not that unusual because you know, here's another band that is doing it and they're just as successful, in some ways more successful than your band. You know, maybe that just shows that this was more normal than you thought. And yeah, for a guy like Jack White, it seems like being normal is like the worst thing you could call him. Well, and here's a weird flip side of the coin too. And I don't know because I was I was in high school, so I had my own feelings about it, but I don't know you who was, you know, writing professionally at the time. It was almost harder for me to take the Black Keys seriously when they first came on the scene because I just thought of them as a knockoff white stripes. And I feel like nobody talks about their perspective of sort of being lumped in and seen as like, you know, an also ran rock duo from the Midwest who did old blues rock in this era. Like, was that something that was discussed a lot in critical circles of like when they first came on the scene as being like, wait, who are these people that are kind of trying to get in Jack White's lane or not really? Oh, absolutely. And, and, and again, not only is it a two person band, not only is it a two person band playing blues rock, it's like a two person band playing blues rock that has like a color in their name. And it's like a color that's like the opposite of the White Stripes name. And instead of a stripe, it's a key. Like it's kind of a similar construct there. So yeah, and I think like earlier in their career, like the Black Keys were definitely like a cult band and they had a pretty good following. I, I saw them on the Magic Potion Tour and they were playing, I think, in a room that housed like a thousand people. You know, so they were that level of band. Not hugely successful, but like doing pretty well. And then... They just made this, I think, very deliberate shift away from that garagey type sound to more of like a glossy pop sound and partnering with Danger Mouse and making records that could, you know, really work on radio. And it's interesting because like this rivalry flares up when the Black Keys make that pivot. And you could really argue that at that point they were like the least like the White Stripes that they ever were in their career. Like when they were putting out like Thick Freakness, like that record or like the big come up, the similarities between what the White Stripes were doing and the Black Keys, like it was, it was very close. But like the White Stripes never really made a record like El Camino or like Brothers, you know, like those records are pretty different from anything that Jack White was doing. So yeah, it's interesting that it ended up flaring up at that point. But yeah, I think ultimately with these two, again, I kind of go back to this idea of like, for me, when I looked at it, when I was writing my book, it just seemed like a perfect metaphor for like how men relate to each other. That like, instead of looking at what unites you to somebody, you know, your common ground, 
it becomes this competitive thing. And I think even like with, with men who like each other, there's often a combative element to their relationship. And it's about sort of giving each other shit, you know, either with like sort of like a, like a verbal gamesmanship or sometimes it can actually like be physical, like if you're playing a lot of sports together or something. And it becomes like this weird power dynamic. And I just wonder like if initially Jack White kind of felt the need to assert his dominance <laughs> over these guys. I mean, it seems like that was their dynamic for a long time. And then fortunately, they just got over it at some point and were able to, to, to chill out. Yeah, I mean, I can't imagine that Dan Auerbach would try to, you know, puff himself up back, you know? I feel like if Jack White asserts his dominance, I feel like Dan would have been like, yeah, you're Jack White. It's okay, we're not, we're, I mean, I feel like even he knew they weren't in the same league, despite the Black Keys' huge commercial success at that period. I feel like he realized that it was different strata. We're going to take a quick break to get a word from our sponsor before we get to more Rivals. My name is Johnny B. Good. And I'm the host of the new podcast, Creating a Con, the story of BitCon. Over this nine-part series, I'll explore the life and crimes of my best friend, Ray Trapani. I always wanted to be a criminal. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. You see, Ray has this unique ability to find loopholes and exploit them. They collected $30 million. There were headlines about it. His company, Centratech, was one of the hottest crypto startups in 2017. It was going to change the world, until it didn't. I came into my office, opened my email, and the subject heading was FBI request. It was only a matter of time before the truth came out. You can only fake it till you make it for so long before they find out that your Harvard degree is not so crimson. How could you sit there and do something that you know will objectively cause more harm in the world. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of BitCon, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I never thought I'd take my three young kids to Sicily to solve a century-old mystery, but that's what I'm doing in my new podcast, The Sicilian Inheritance. Join us as we travel thousands of miles on the beautiful and crazy island of Sicily as I trace my roots back through a mystery for the ages and untangle clues within my family's origin story, which has morphed like a game of telephone through the generations. Was our family matriarch killed in a land deal gone wrong? Or was it by the Sicilian mafia? A lover's quarrel? Or was she, as my father believed, a witch? Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Well, this is the part of the episode where we talk about the pro side of each side of the rivalry. And if we talk about Jack White, I think that this is the case that we've been making up throughout this episode. I, I don't think there's any question that Jack White's 
greatest albums with the White Stripes are some of the best rock music of their time. And I wonder if like younger people realize that because I feel like Jack White's solo career has been kind of weird and his image is so strange now that maybe people have like forgotten like how great the White Stripes are. But I think overall, you know, if you look at his stature in rock music, he really is like, I think, looked at as like one of the great rock stars and like one of the only rock stars that can kind of stand toe to toe with like the greats of previous generation. Uh, so like if you look strictly at his output as a musician, I think he really deserves his props. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, a lot of people talk about his, his songwriting being an incredible conceptualist, but I, I love his guitar. He's one of my favorite guitarists of all time. His solo on Black Math alone is just one of my favorites ever. And Dan Auerbach once said that 99% of the time, guitar bores the shit out of him. And I just can't imagine Jack White ever feeling that way. I just think that's such an interesting distinction between the two. Like he, I mean, it's the opening scene of uh, Might Get Loud. He makes a guitar out of like a, what, a Coke bottle and a piece of wood or something. Like I just love how he just wrestles sound out of, reminds me of Neil Young in that way too. He's not a virtuoso at all. It's just sheer force of will. He can wrestle sounds out of his instrument. I, I love it so much. So if we go over to like the Black Keys side, I think it's clear that like in this rivalry that, they didn't really do anything wrong. Like Jack White, <laughs> as we've said, like he was the antagonist almost in every instance. Like he was the one who, again, felt threatened, I think, by the Black Keys for some reason and felt the need, again, like as I said before, like I, I think he really felt like he had to assert his dominance in some way, which, you know, speaks to some level of like weird insecurity mixed with like just megalomania, you know, <laughs> on his part, which is a very rock star type combination to have. But you know, I don't think this feud would have existed, really, if Jack White hadn't been slagging the Black Keys in the press so many times. Or, you know, attempting to fight them in recording studios <laughs> or in, you know, <laughs> bars, all these different places. So, you know, it's clearly, like, not their fault that any of this happened. You know, unless you count, of course, being a band that's not as good as the White Stripes. Like, that is, I guess, their their crime, if you want to call it that, in this rivalry, that they were the band that came in the White Stripes' wake that did something similar to them that I think is like, I think they're a really good band on, in their own right, but like, are they as good as the White Stripes? No, I don't think so. But again, they're a good rock band and they've, they've made good rock records. So, you know, I think that's the, the case that you make for the Black Keys. They also seem so much more chill than Jack White too. Like Jack White takes so many stands about like, musical purity and, and not using, you know, electronic recording techniques. And he seems to just make his life a living hell by recording with like tape and razors and all these old timey things. But there's something arguably to me more pure about the Black Keys just being like dudes who want to rock in a basement. Like like by, by not taking all those stands for authenticity and purity, it somehow seems even more authentic and pure. And I, it's something I really appreciate them. I, a lot of their albums sound more uh, emotionally vacant to me in a lot of ways too. Like uh, when I play them, and I, and I like them, but a lot of the songs to me run together, especially the the like Turn Blue era and the latest album Let's Rock. I really didn't like too much, but I, I don't know. I just appreciate how they, they seem to be trying less hard, and that's endearing. Yeah, I mean, I think what's generally true is that like the best White Stripes albums like reach down deeper and hit harder and last longer than like the Black Keys records. I think the Black Keys, again, like they're just like a good time rock band. And like if you're having a barbecue, you can put on the Black Keys record and you can have a good time. But I think like the White Stripes, it's like their best records. It's like, oh, this is like the Rolling Stones of our time or like the Led Zeppelin of our time. Like it has that kind of vibe to it. 
And and that ultimately, I think, defines the difference between these two bands. But like when you look at them together, I think for all their similarities and all the superficial you know things that you can point out that are the same between these two groups, they're actually like pretty different. <laughs> and I think that like for me, like I like both bands and I appreciate them for different reasons. Um, again, I think the White Stripes are like they have kind of like an art rock element to what they're doing, even though it's such a primal kind of music. Um, I think Jack White has a conceptual element and an intellectual element that he brings to the band that isn't there in the Black Keys. Like you said, like they are more of just like good time, chugle, drink some beer, have a good time and, you know, rock the night away. And I think both of those kinds of music have their place. And it kind of shows like you can do a lot with a two person format, you know, just because you have two people in your band and you might be playing a similar kind of music. That's really where the similarity stops. And then you have your own personality after that. Yeah, totally. I always thought the White Stripes had more of like a punk side to it. And and like you said, it, it made me feel so much more than the Black Keys, which just, was just straight ahead, four on the floor blues kind of stuff. And yeah, I agree that they exist in very different places and planes to me. And I like them both. Well, it looks like this rivalry is over. It was fun for a while. We had some good confrontations in recording studios and in bars and in Karen Nelson's emails and in Rolling Stone interviews. Uh, but it seems like a Seven Nation Army has held both of these sides back, <laughs> if you will. And now they're at peace. So I guess we should be at peace, too, at the end of this episode of Rivals. So thank you all for listening. And uh, we will be back with more feuds and beefs and long-serving resentments next week. Rivals is a production of iHeartRadio. The executive producers are Sean Titone and Noel Brown. The supervising producers are Taylor Shacoin and Tristan McNeil. The producer is Joel Hatstadt. I'm Jordan Runtog. And I'm Stephen Hyden. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Johnny B. Good the host of the podcast Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin. This podcast dives deep into the story of Ray Trapani and his company, Centratech. I'll explore how 320-somethings built a company out of lies, deceit, and greed. I've been saying since a very young age that I was going to be a millionaire. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge this season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Listen to the highly anticipated 100th episode of Tank and Jay Valentine's R&B Money Podcast with artist Chris Brown. Even working with you from Kerry Hilson, Adonis, mm -hmm. back in the day, I was 15, 14 doing that album. So like I said, I was in school like, yeah. okay, this is how you do it. This is how you make a song. There's a verse, a pre-chorus, and then a hook. I didn't know none of that. You learned I, that over a summer, bro. That's what I, it felt like. That's what it felt like. Listen to R&B Money 
on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts.